Let's bow our heads, if we may, and pray as we sit. Lord, we ask this morning that you would make your word a lamp unto our souls, that you would bring your light and heat into the very depth of our being, that we might know Jesus Christ to be the one true and living God and might put every particle of our confidence in him and in him alone. Amen. It seems to be as I thought. Uh, I'm, I'm rather disappointed. Ladies, I look out on a sea of your faces, and not one of you appears to be wearing a hat. <laughs> and yet, St. Paul is quite clear in 1 Corinthians 11 that if a woman does not cover her head when she's praying, she should have her hair cut off. Despite that, it would seem that most of you have not done so. And gentlemen, you don't seem to have paid much attention either. Leviticus 19 quite clearly says, you shall not cut off the hair at the sides of your head. And yet, look at us. Now, of course, you know that I'm not being entirely serious. We all know that those rules are in the past, but how do we know that? And how do we know which rules are in the past? What rules are there that are left for now? You get up in the morning, you put your tea bag in the cup for a certain number of seconds, according to the particular rule that your household likes, and the rest of your day is rules from then on. We come today to that question of Jesus as the fulfillment, not now of of one of the big roles of prophet, priest, or king. But how does Jesus fulfill the law itself? What Diana rightly called the Torah. Because it is so much more than uh, just what we mean by the word law. And for the first part, I really want to think of uh, heart failure as a kind of heading over what I might say. We miss the joy that there was for them in the word which we translate as law. But we hear the word law and it just means rules. We know they're necessary, but who loves rules? But for God's people, what they called Torah was so much more than rules. It was for them the way and the truth and the life. And when we read Deuteronomy 10, we catch a sense of the joy of Torah. God has rescued his people from Egypt. He's given them a way of being together in a society before him. The Torah was not seen as a burden, but all as a gift. The gift of an ordered and stable life. A life where you didn't anymore have to uh, invent ways of being before God and one another, relating to God and to your neighbors. This is the words, and now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, 
and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands that I'm giving you today for your own good. And the whole of the rest of the Old Testament, all of it, is a commentary on those words. If Torah was to be their delight, then the whole of the rest of the Old Testament shows what complete and utter failures they were before it. They worshipped other gods and they oppressed one another. That's the trajectory of the whole of the Old Testament. And we have to ask why. Wouldn't you want to keep it? If you this morning were entrusted with the will of the living and true God, wouldn't you want to keep it? And of course the answer does point at us. It tells us something about ourselves, because we can't say we've been any better than they are. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. This week, we've learned, have we not, from the uh, Care Quality Commission, that a fifth of hospitals are woefully adrift in their elder care. You may need to bear in mind that four-fifths are not, but one-fifth are. Now, do we blame the rules... Uh, in those hospitals for the fact that there are nurses that don't follow the rules. Of course we don't. We don't say it's the fault of the rules. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. If there's a couple of nurses talking across an elderly patient about uh, what it is they, uh, where it is they expect to go clubbing with their boyfriend uh, that night, then uh, that's not the problem of the rules. It's the problem of the heart. And Israel had a perfect law. It was a real revelation of God's perfect will, but it was they that were far from perfect. And it's not an accident that it worked out like that. It isn't as though God gives them this great law as a bright wheeze one day while Moses happens to be up a mountain and then discovers over time, oh, rats, they've blown it. He precisely wants the outcome that we get to. He wants us to be without excuse that he didn't tell us how to live rightly. And it's a problem that the Old Testament recognizes. Towards the end of the records that we've got of it, we find the prophet Ezekiel longing for the day when God will act. Not the law that needs changing, it's the people. And he will give them a new heart to deal with their heart failure. If the problem is heart failure, then in Ezekiel's words, it's a heart of flesh. We'd perhaps say these days a heart of flame. You'll know that Jesus gave a hard time in his day to the scribes and to the Pharisees. And let's remember who they were. Uh, This week, in response to what's gone on uh, in the NHS, there are those people who say, this is a terrible situation. Obviously, what we must do is teach the rules harder. That'll sort it out. That's what the Pharisees were doing. Officially, God's people had come back after exile, but then waves and waves of oppressors had rolled through the land. The Romans were just the last lot. The Pharisees looked around and said, this is terrible. We know what the answer must be. We've just got to work harder at keeping the rules, teaching the rules. We'll even pad it out. We'll make it easier by surrounding it with buffering laws so that our people can't even go near breaking the law if they wanted to. 
Pharisees and the teachers of the law didn't start out as bad people. But they were dangerous people. God had promised a new heart, and the Pharisees reached for a bigger book. And that meant they were always going to come into conflict with Jesus. Jesus is God made flesh, not rules. He's not just a teacher of Torah. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's not just an example of following the law, although he does. He embodies the law. He is Torah on legs. He's the fulfillment of the law, not an alternative to it. First, he's far stricter than they ever were. He says in Matthew 5, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, then there's no hope for you. How were they supposed to respond to that? Well, we know. The response of the heart is meant to be when we hear that, but I can't possibly do more than the Pharisees. And that's the point. Imagine a shepherd on a hillside as night settles and he hears off in the middle distance the wolves starting to howl. That shepherd will drive his sheep into a safe sheepfold for the night. They won't understand why he's dragged them away from their pasture or rushed them this way and that towards the fold. But he knows that the wolves are coming. And so Jesus drives us. We were happy as we were. But he knows that sin will get us. And he wants to drive us towards utter despair in ourselves, because only then will we be safe because we will have called out to God for mercy. And if we're tempted to think that we're not that bad, listen to the shape of the story that we heard in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus is in a a synagogue. Sorry, page 977. Though it's the the shape and not the, the words I'm looking for. They asked him, they asked Jesus, these Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he says, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit, won't you help, help it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? And he does that, by the way, because there was a story in this buffering of the law. There was nothing uh, about in the particular uh, laws of uh, God that said whether it was right to heal people or not on the Sabbath, though there was a rule that said it was okay to deal well with sheep. So all Jesus is saying is, you know, if you've got the sheep sorted, wouldn't you apply the same to a man? Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. Well, there's a remarkable story. But, verse 14, the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Our hearts love those safe-seeming places that stop well short of needing mercy. And the Pharisees serve to expose what those places, what we ourselves are really like. We can look good. 
We can look moral. We can keep lots of rules. But our hearts are murderous towards the one answer God insists on giving. You are sinners in need of my mercy, and the wolf is coming. Run to Jesus. Left to itself, my heart hates a message of mercy. I am so much better than that, I think I am anyway. And so does your heart hate it. But it is as we call for mercy, as we say with every fiber of our being in the face of all the rules, I can't do this, let alone surpass the Pharisees, then we find that our heart is finally in the right place. It is as we let ourselves be rescued from our sin that we find peace. It is as we are driven down that we are then raised up. Jesus is in himself the fulfillment of the law. As we turn from our own efforts to keep the law and we turn to him who is the way, the truth, and the life, then we are saved. But not until then, because we have not until then abandoned confidence in the rules and the law and being good and moral. The Torah of God was pointing to the outworking in a particular lifestyle of what total devotion to the Lord looked like. Those words in Deuteronomy are so warm. Fear him, love him, serve him with all your heart. For all its demands, that law, it was only to be a sign of that total devotion. And it's in that devotion that we're to surpass the Pharisees. Jesus takes nothing away from the law in terms of what the law is demanding. It is a total devotion. Indeed, he increases it. He says, don't settle for halfway stopping points. But he reshapes it so that your headscarves and your hats and your sideburns today no longer matter. What was limiting about Torah was that all it could do was point out failure. And the murderous hearts of the Pharisees pointed it out even more sharply. We need a new heart, a heart of devotion flaming with love for God. And so follow the heart of God. After all, what then are we going to make of these very precise Old Testament laws? Do we just ignore them? Well, no and yes. We remember what they teach us, that the human heart will not keep laws, however marvelous they may be. And and those pages are there to teach us, too, what a glorious thing it is that God should speak, that we should have a God who makes his will known. And they teach us what it is of God that comes to expression in Jesus. When Jesus says, love the Lord your God, when he says, love your neighbor, the Old Testament is full of the stories that illustrate what those things mean. It's exactly this kind of total, deep, passionate devotion that comes to expression in Jesus. 
But yes, once Jesus has come, we'd be mad to go back to those detailed laws and think they applied to us today. When most of you arrived, you came through the meeting place. When the work was done in this church that made the meeting place happen, uh, one of the bits that got moved was the two sets of commandments that are now over on your left. And many Protestant churches, I guess, still have the Ten Commandments pasted up at the front. Now, at the risk of sounding controversial, but I think the area of the law is controversial, I see no logic in pasting them up. If Jesus is the fulfillment of the Torah, then he is the complete fulfillment. Yes, let's keep them as a historical record. But it doesn't mean that if Jesus has fulfilled everything, we can say, oh good, Jesus fulfilled it, so now I get permission to kill. It just means that the issue of whether it might ever be right to kill is taken out of the Old Testament law and into Jesus' own command to love God and my neighbor. A command taken, of course, from the Old Testament itself. I cannot see how we can possibly say well, it's okay not to wear headscarves, it's okay not to shave the corners of your hair, it's okay to eat shrimp now. Oh, but by the way, there are some moral rules that you've got to keep, because they're in the law. No, there are, I, I, I don't believe that it's a good idea to kill people. But I think we don't kill people because of Jesus now, not because it's one of the rules alongside shrimp and covering your head. And and if that's true, if Jesus really is the fulfillment of the law, then there are two dangers. The first is that we lose all restraint. And there have been those in Christian history who say, Jesus has come, we can do whatever we like. And it is true that St. Augustine, faced with some of them in the 5th century, said, do as you please. It's just that he prefaced it by saying, love God and... Do as you please. There is that flame of total devotion that is to be trusted. Just as Jesus seems to teach that he's the fulfillment of the law, we follow Jesus with that intensity. But that's going to mean that we love God and our neighbor more intensely than before, not less. But the bigger danger in the church, most of the time, is not the loss of restraint, but imposing too much new restraint. It happens when we put up the Ten Commandments and say, ah, but this bit of the law you have to keep to. Remember, I'm not opposed to them. I'm just warning against keeping them because they're in the Old Testament law, rather than they're because good things that flow from Jesus' life and teaching. The human heart loves these halfway places where we can control how others behave. Um, uh, What's the the church, name of the church in Norwich, that's just up the hill a little bit from Thorns? Um, Is it St. John Madamark? It's the Jacobean one. You'd know. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I should have asked. Yes, Rod was in. Sorry, I don't know why I bothered. Yeah, sorry, hello, Rod. Um, uh, St. John Macca, wonderful Jacobean church. Go in there sometime and look at the signalling 
of what the top end of St. John Mademarket says. Obey the king and obey God. And here's some rules to do it with. The human heart loves those halfway places where we can control how others behave and feel that we are safe because of what we are doing for God. The truth is, it's only if you've faced despair over your inability to do anything for God that you can become of any use to him. Because only then can your heart be renewed. Let me press that home a very little. If you're here this morning hoping that God will be okay with you, because you've kept some internal list of rules that you think matter, then I have to tell you that you are so wrong. I have to invite you to the wonderful world of complete despair. Despair of keeping the rules and accept that God will keep you. Come to Christianity Explored. Bring your friends to Christianity Explored. Do what what you need to do. But to press that home, I want to end with a short passage from 1 Corinthians. I find it startling, this passage. And I wonder how it was heard the first time. St. Paul says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. I'll press the pause button a moment. That's what you were. As Paul goes on to talk about present and future, what would he imagine he will say next? Well, of course he is going to say, stop that. Don't be immoral. Don't steal. Don't swindle doesn't say any of that. How astonishing that he comes on with, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now, there was a superb opportunity that St. Paul had, and he completely blew it. He had a terrific opportunity to say to these people who'd lived extraordinarily immoral lives, now I'm going to tell you how to get it right. And he completely throws away that opportunity. He just says, everything's permissible, but make sure it's beneficial. Everything's permissible, but make sure you're the, you remain in charge. He sets the limit that Jesus would set. Does it benefit your neighbor? Is it beneficial? Does it bring glory to the Lord? Who's in charge? So yes, I reckon, to finish off, that pretty much anything does go once Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Doesn't matter if we have a headscarf on or if we have long hair or short hair. Doesn't matter. So long, that is, as our heart and our head and our body and our soul and our very being are aflame with the love of God as we go out of that door again this morning. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for those little stopping places that we hang on to in our hearts. 
that keep us from the raw encounter with the living God. Forgive us, perhaps, for years that we may have spent believing that it's only because we're a good girl or a good boy that God will love us. And give us the courage to face the responsibility of freedom. Set us free by the power of your Spirit. And if we're to rejoice in that freedom, then please renew again our hearts and every day that they may be a fire, a flame with love for this Jesus who is the law on legs. We ask it in his name. Amen.